Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. All right, welcome to the Monday edition of the On The Tape podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Liz Young. That's EY from SoFi. She is the head market strategist over there at SoFi, where you can get your money all right in what? One app. One app. There One you go. application. How about that? Liz, we got a lot to cover here. You and I are going to take a whirl around everything macro, kind of revisit some of the things that we talked about early last week before that CPI print and the explosive rally that we saw after. And then also all this consumer data that we got straight from the horse's mouth, the CEOs of a lot of retailers and what they had to say. There was a lot of cross currents, I would say, at least as it relates to the health of the consumer and what some of these retailers are seeing heading into the holiday season. Guy Adami is going to join me after Liz and I speak, and we are going to cover a whole host of stuff going on in tech all weekend long. We're covering this saga with OpenAI, Sam Altman, and Microsoft, and what the implications are within the AI ecosystem. Elon continues to melt down a little bit on his Twitter, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the implications are for Tesla, possibly SpaceX, and of course, NVIDIA earnings this week. All right, Liz, let's do this thing. A week ago, exactly one week ago, I think you said, and we actually had a snappy little video. Did you see it? It went out on the TikTok and the There's Insta and everything like that. There's always snappy little videos. No, there was of, of you saying, we're going to have a rally here, okay? Oh. And you were thinking about the CPI. <laughs> and I know that you were talking, uh, listen, I think you and the rest of the world expected CPI to be cool, okay? Mm-hmm. But it was cool by one-tenth of a percent, okay? The expectations yeah. was 3.3%. It came in at 3.2%. And like that, the S&P and the NASDAQ were up 2%. And then yields were down like 15 basis points in a straight line. I did not expect that. Did no. that catch you a little bit off guards? The yield stuff, yes. And and it wasn't even 15, but it was the, the two-year intraday last Tuesday. Yeah. Intraday peak to trough moved 24 basis points. And we did some work on, you know, how, how usual is that? Does that happen very yeah. often? 98th percentile of moves 
back since the 90s. So that's a huge move in the two-year. It was a huge move across the entire belly of the curve, mm-hmm. the belly being somewhere between twos and tens. And that caught me by surprise. And here's the way I would interpret it or the, the way that I did interpret it. And granted, this is through my cautionary lens, yeah. but the way I interpreted it was the stock market initially saw the CPI coming down and down faster than we expected. So below expectations pretty much across the board and said, let's celebrate. Mm -hmm. That was public enemy number one. We have broken inflation. The stock market decided we had broken the code. Everything was solved. And now the Fed is it has to be done hiking. And that's probably true. The Fed probably is done hiking. Now we're talking about cuts. We'll get into that later. But the Treasury market, in my opinion, interpreted it as whoa, 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 I think we went too far too fast. Mm -hmm. That's a huge drop in yields. It doesn't matter how big the rally in stock was, a huge drop in yields like that. And just, again, the persistent volatility in Treasury yields tells me that the bond market expecting different things in the stock market and the bond market maybe sending a different signal in the sense that, yeah, we wanted it to cool, but now it's cooling a little bit too fast yeah. and we're concerned. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, Guy Adami says it all the time. Careful what you wish for. I thought over the weekend, um, it was interesting in the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street has a plan for a soft landing, buy more stocks. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so I, I thought this was funny. Um, so, but, but really, this is at the crux of it. So if we're talking about how yields have come in, what are the expectations for rate cuts next year? I know you've thought um, a lot about this now mm-hmm. that basically rate increases are off the table, which you just yep. said for this year. Year. I think a month ago they were pricing in the potential for another 25 basis point hike, but now yep. we're seeing cuts being pulled into the first half of next year. And it, whatever the models are that interpret those headlines, mm-hmm. they basically just said that if rate cut potential is increasing, that means you have to buy stocks. And so how do you think about that? I know, uh, again, it's not just about inflation because if we get into a deflationary you know, spiral, mm-hmm. that could be really bad for the economy too, right? right? And so if the economy's bad, if rates are coming in, that doesn't mean that it's good for S&P earnings. I would actually argue we need a little deflation. Yeah. We need some of these negative prints, at least month over month, year over year, for a, at least a short period of time. Because as we know, mathematically, Inflation has continued to grow. It's just growing slower. So everybody that was under pressure and there's an entire cohort of the economy and entire cohort of consumers that are really under pressure by higher prices. Everybody that was under pressure before is still under pressure. They're just under less growing pressure as the months go by. So I think we do need some deflation to come into the picture. It's a matter of how do investors interpret that? Are we going to interpret that as a good thing or a signal that things are now teetering on the brink of collapse, right? And I think last week was a pivotal, an absolutely pivotal week for a couple reasons. The first of which is that we went from pricing in any additional hike. So that out the window, right? No more hikes priced in. And we pulled forward the cuts another month. About a month ago, the first cut wasn't expected until July of next year. By the end of last week, first cut is expected by May of next year. So we continue to pull this forward. Now there's actually a non-zero probability of a cut in March of next year. I won't be surprised if the first cut is fully priced into March by the end of this year. Here's the thing. As that happens and as that first cut draws nearer and nearer, it's the cuts. We've talked about this. It's the cuts that get you, not the hikes. So as that first cut draws nearer and nearer, that's when the market, the stock market, is going to start to get trepidatious. Yes, it is bullish for the two-year yield to come down over that, let's say, two- to three-year period. In that little window of when the cuts start, so let's say about a month before to three months after or so, 
that's usually when you see the market have meaningful drawdowns. We can get excited about the first cut coming, but the reality is that the likelihood of the market volatility happening right around that time is higher. Yeah, and, and just to, to put a point on this, I mean, like, like okay, if the knee-jerk reaction as far as the right hiking cycle is over is to buy stocks, like that makes sense, but it really mm-hmm. comes down to what gets priced in. And so, um, you know, if the whole game is a story of expectations, right? Mm-hmm. So expectations seem pretty low. And then when you had a cooler than expected number, you get the sort of rally. I, I've just been saying this, the higher or the faster or the, the farther we run into year end is the harder it's going to be when we actually do get to that rate cutting cycle, especially if it is for weaker economic data. And I also saw, I thought this was interesting in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, the hidden hero fueling soft landing hopes, a boost in supply. And so when we're talking about increased activity, like I, I just didn't, I didn't get this. And so I just want to kind of read this a little bit. Fed Chair Powell signaled an important shift this month when he said the central bank didn't necessarily have to worry about stronger growth feeding through to higher prices. The reason the U.S. economy's speed limit known as potential growth appears to have temporarily moved up thanks to easing bottlenecks, a boost in the number of people available to work and possibly in productivity. So I thought that was interesting in a way because even if we do have, let's say, 3% inflation, if wage inflation is not keeping up with that, you still have a problem, right, for a consumer, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, let's call it 25 to 3% inflationary environment that we're likely to be in in the first half of next year. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think there continues to be a problem for the consumer. And actually, after the CPI print came out last week and then we got more inflation data later in the week, there were a couple comments on Twitter. It's funny how when you watch just the tone shift, yeah. right? A couple comments on Twitter, just random, randomly people saying things like companies are going to have to lower prices. Yep. Well, they're not going to do that. Yep. They're not going to lower prices just because inflation well, has come you, down. Well, hold on. But you say that. But like, for instance, if demand is weak, Tesla is a exactly. great example. I mean, so, exactly. like, so that's the point that then that's the thing that they can't control. And one of the reasons why I say careful what you wish for for disinflation is yep. like, look at China. And look at what's going on there. I mean, without, let me just tell you, without the weakness in demand for EVs in China that yeah. has to do with competition and now a price war, that has been exported here to the US. And so that's the thing that I'd just be very careful about here. Like, that's the two cents. But that's the take is that, yeah, companies will lower prices as soon as demand destruction happens yeah. and as soon as competition becomes more fierce and their revenue line is going down, they're not making their unit sales anymore. The only reason they're going to lower prices is to protect their own margins, right? They're not going to lower prices just because the macroeconomic data changed. And I think that's where we're going to see a mismatch too. And now this is something that you can't necessarily measure. It's you're just going to have to have your finger on the pulse of it. Consumers are going to expect things to be cheaper because they're hearing that inflation is down. And then things are not going to get cheaper right away. So that's what causes a, a further pullback in demand. It feeds that snowball rolling down a mountain, right? It causes a further pullback mm-hmm. in demand that's already happening. And that's where you start to teeter into demand destruction mm-hmm. because people are saying, you know what? I'm not making enough money for this. I thought inflation was coming down. Why are prices still so high? Why are they still rising? And they stop spending. So I think we're going to get into that sort of territory pretty soon. And, I, and the consumer is the key to all of this. 
Yeah, no doubt. Let's see some of the retail earnings from last week. And I thought this was really interesting. There's a great service that I've been using. It's called The Transcript. And they basically mm. aggregate a, a bunch of commentary from earnings, S&P 500 earnings, conference calls. And so if you're like me and you like to get a wide swath of what the companies are actually saying, services like this are really good. There's also one called Quarter. But I want to hit some of these retailers and, and what we heard. Walmart was the biggest because I, I think that that 8% decline that the stock had from an all-time high to be very fair mm -hmm. in an environment where a lot of retailers are trading really poorly. I thought this really stuck out. Recently, we've experienced this from the Walmart CFO. We've experienced a higher degree of variability in weekly performance in, in between holiday events in the U.S., including seeing a softening in the back half of October that was off trend uh, to the rest of the quarter. And it's interesting that they mentioned mm -hmm. October because there was a bunch of commentary about something happening from a whole host of C-level executives in the retail space between um, September um, and October. Here's one from the Home Depot. Big ticket comp transactions for uh, those over 1,000 were down 5% uh, compared to the third quarter of last year. We continue to see softer engagement in big ticket discretionary categories like flooring, countertops, and cabinets. And then lastly, here's one from Target. Overall, consumers are still spending, but pressures like higher interest rates, the resumption of student loan repayments, increased credit card debt, and reduced savings rates have left them with less discretionary income, forcing them to make trade-offs um, in their family budget. So mm -hmm. again, these are big box retailers. Mm -hmm. Some of them, if we're just looking at stock performance, have done very differently than the others. We mentioned yep. Walmart, Home Depot, and Target have clearly been laggers, but Home Depot and Target rallied off of results that were slightly better than expected, despite commentary like that. Well, Target had its sell-off earlier because of inventory issues. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing with retailers. This is another one of those things that isn't necessarily measurable, but you can feel it. There was a, a tweet that went out last week. Do I still call them tweets? I do. So, okay. Yeah. A tweet that went out last week from somebody just basically asking, you know, have you guys noticed that Black Friday sales are more fierce, right? You're seeing it more. Yeah. I responded, lighter than usual demand equals heavier than usual promotion. Excess inventory equals excess couponing. Yep. And I know we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but I can feel it. I can sense it, right? There are retailers that are really pushing this. I mean, I close my email for 10 minutes. I open it back up and I've got probably five to 10 promotional emails in it already but about spending in holiday season. But isn't that prices, Liz? We just had this conversation. It so is like for effectively, yeah. yes. In, because in Black Friday used that to be day. one day and now it's right. two weeks of yep. 25 to 30% off or whatever. So yep. like when you think about that, they're effectively lowering prices. And I think that this like very promotional environment speaks to the fact that we're likely to be in a period of basically weaker demand. Mm -hmm. And these companies are seeing it. And I just want to put this point. This was another comment. This is from CEO. Doug McMillan of Walmart, in the U.S., we may be managing a period of deflation in the months to come, and that would be put more unit pressure on us. Uh, we welcome it because it's better for our customers. So I think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. That's a spin mm -hmm. on that, right? And yep. we know that Walmart is basically made their bones by having the lowest prices for their customers. But again, yep. that's why the inventory issues over the last few years have been so important. Go back to 2022. Do you remember that day that Walmart gapped down 20% or mm -hmm. so when they were dealing with their inventory issues, and they were very promotional back then. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in that same statement where they talked about October being weak, he started to talk about November being strong, but it was because of promotion, Yeah. right? So if you've got the low-cost leader doing promotions to try to increase right. unit sales, that's an indication that demand is softening even at the lower end of the spectrum. And that's after consumers have traded down. We've been talking about this trade down for quite a while now, consumers trading down from something like a Target to a yep. Walmart. 
And now Walmart is having to promote. So there's something going on here. The consumer is is absolutely pulling back. I think that this is a holiday season to watch and it will be a holiday season to remember. I don't think that companies are going to meet their unit goals, their unit sales goals, even with the promotion. So you're saying it's going to be a December to remember. I think it will be a December to remember. All right, so here was one last comment, and this is again from the transcript, and I love this service here. They're talking about lower income consumers are particularly stressed. This is from the Wendy's CEO, home of the Baconator. Uh, Mm. Is that that what you're going to do when you go to a Wendy's? I wasn't, I'm not a big Wendy's gal. Yeah, I'm a Mickey you D's look girl. like Wendy's, uh, like Wendy. If you just she had has red like, hair. P- yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, but we've seen you in pigtails before. But this is what the CEO of Wendy's said on their call last week. If you look at the consumer, it's really a tale of two sides. The over seventy-five thousand consumer that's in the income continues to be healthy. We continue to see traffic growth at the segment. We're holding our share of that segment under seventy-five thousand consumers. Are a little more stressed, and so I think what's interesting about this, and this is going back to Walmart in a way, is that Walmart. Walmart has been the beneficiary of that trade down. They've been talking about that for quarters. So if a company like Wendy's is also benefiting from a trade down, it's really saying that that lower end consumer is feeling a lot of stress in this inflationary environment, although it is cooling, but higher rates. And let's just talk about this. And I know, listen, I want to point people, not just because of the snappy title, but you're on the money blog and the SoFi blog. You had a note out last week, Cool and the Gang. It was talking about a lot of these things that we've just talked, but there's a lot of good uh, data in there, a lot of good charts, and we'll put that in the show notes here. But when you think about that issue right here with the stress of this lower end consumer, they're the ones that had been benefiting from wage growth, right? Mm -hmm. With some of the disconnects in the job environment post COVID, Mm -hmm. if they're starting to feel a little stress and they have lots of variable debt, that's going to be obviously resetting at much higher rates. We are really setting up, I think, for a difficult first half of 2024. And I go back to some of the comments that we talked about a few weeks ago. I think it was Paul Tudor Jones saying that he expects us to be in a recession in Q1 of 2024. It's going to be led by a lower end consumer dealing with high inflation. I know it's down a lot, but much higher interest rates at a time where if companies are dealing with all of these inventory issues and they're mm-hmm. dealing with these pricing pressures and the like, and they mm-hmm. can't pass it through to the consumer anymore, they're going to start making headcount reductions. Yes. Okay. Here's what you watch. This is one of those cycles in consumer behavior that, again, it's it's not entirely measurable, but it will, I think, start to rear its ugly head in the beginning of next year. So if this is a holiday season to remember, like I would expect it to be, meaning that spending is going to be lighter, companies Mm -hmm. are going to be over-promoting because they're worried about hitting their unit targets, what happens, especially in the lower-end consumer, is that they still do holiday spending, but they do it on credit or they do it on layaway, right? So then what happens in January and February? The credit card bills come due. We already have seen an increase in delinquencies in subprime auto loans. We've seen an increase in delinquencies in credit cards. And we know that credit card debt is at high levels. So watch what happens January and February as we start to see those delinquency rates come in and as we see consumer leverage tick up. I'm willing to bet that delinquencies, I'm not going to say skyrocket or spike because I don't know that they're going to do that, especially if we're only talking about a certain cohort of consumers. But I'm willing to bet that in January and February, we're going to see delinquency rates increase because of the holiday season, even if it's light. And that continues to add on to the story that is the natural progression of credit deteriorating. 
And a lower end consumer already under pressure is going to see further credit deterioration unless something gives. All right, let's finish off and bring it back to the stock market. You had a tweet out this morning. We're going to put it in the show notes here. After gapping up on the weak CPI print, some are looking for the S&P 500 to pull back here. An area to keep in mind is 4350 to 4400, which lines up with the 23.6% retracement level, the 50-day moving average, and where we've seen recent turning points in market direction. Just to give our listeners and our viewers a little sense of where the S&P is, it's at 4520. It's up about 18% or so. So on the year, so that kind of 4350, 4400 level. And just as a note, we bounced off of 4190, 4200, which was the breakout level from May. So again, this rally that we've seen in the S&P 500, basically from 4200 to 4500 in a straight line since that November 1st meeting, obviously given a little jet fuel from that CPI print, it's in a straight line. Like market moves like that usually have a habit of retracing some of it. So you're saying 4350 to 4400 or so could be a good level. The market overshoots. We know this. It, it overshoots on the downside, overshoots on the upside. When we broke below 4200, everybody was saying, okay, that was it. That was the support level. We're below it. Now we're just going to keep going down. That's not really what happened. We overshot a little bit yeah. and bounced back out of it. So yeah, I mean, we could probably give a little back. This has been a pretty fast and furious rally, obviously a huge drop in yields. There's always some right sizing that goes on after that swift of a move and everybody takes a breather. Something that I would say about the market this week, we're, we're bound to hear all over media, this is a shortened trading week. Yep. It's a low volume week. It's a holiday week. It's probably going to be quiet. I remember a Friday after Thanksgiving, a couple years ago that was anything but quiet. Yeah. I believe it was a thousand point day in the Dow down. Yeah. And there, uh, and there are half the Om- days too. The they Omicron variant that changed. Something like but, that. Yeah. Yeah. They but they're ha- but yes, don't be fooled by the idea that it's a holiday week. It's going to be thin. It's going to be boring and quiet. When trading is thin, it's less quiet if something happens. So yep. keep your eyes open, keep your ears open and make sure that you're still paying attention to what's happening all week long. Yeah. A couple of things that I would just say. So the VIX below 14, we're down from 23 or something like that at the end of last month when the S&P was down at 4,200 or so. I would also point to the Russell 2000. I know it was up 5% last week. It's only up 2% on the year right now. And so to me, that continues to be what I believe is like a leading indicator of, of where probably like the real economy x mega cap ai at least how it's being reflected through the stock market the equal weight s&p is up you know a little less than than 3% on the year i think that's interesting too and all of this and let's just like end on this crude oil you know at 77 bucks i mean yep. i think a lot of these models are also queuing on that in a way especially as you think about inflation, gas at the pump and, and the like here, that's something, you know, in a dollar that's coming in too. So there's plenty of things that could serve as a bit of a tailwind for the economy, a tailwind for the consumer, but they might also speak to something not particularly great as it relates to corporate earnings, despite the fact that those mean that input costs are likely coming down, okay, with rates coming down. But to me, it just seems to be setting up as a pretty nasty cocktail, in, in my opinion, if we do see consumer-led weakness early next year. There's a couple things. So we're talking about the consumer a lot. Of course, oil prices coming down are going to alleviate some of the pressure on the yeah. consumer. But if you take that out of the equation and just look at the behavior of the charts, look at the behavior of the gold chart, look at the behavior of treasury yields, look at the behavior of oil, the way that oil rose steadily into the end of September and now has fallen, the way that gold continues to see surges and small caps, especially, as you mentioned, everybody knows I love watching small caps. I would love to be able to say, yes, please go buy small caps. I don't think that that's the yeah. right call right now. 
small caps are a huge indicator of what's actually happening in the economy. And when you have days where small caps are down and yields are down, that's not a good sign. So if you watch the direction of the charts, the trends of the charts, they are telling you that things are still worrisome. And if we look back on this, if we do head into a recession, here's this is the part that bothers me. If we do head into a recession, we'll look back at a lot of these charts and say they did exactly what they usually do right before a recession starts. Yeah. And that's the concerning part. All right. Liz Young, we appreciate you being here on a Monday, a holiday shortened week. Um, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Um, Just so you know, we will not be with you on Thursday as we usually do the market call because it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, Yeah, we're all busy. (laughs) But we, you know, here's the other thing. I don't want, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. We're dropping our Friday on the tape. Okay, Uh, on Thursday, so people uh, have a nice long weekend to listen to it. And uh we have another Liz is going to be our guest on it. Is it a Liz Ann? It's a Liz Ann Saunders from Schwab. How cool is that? I'm happy to be replaced by a Liz Ann anytime. Fair enough. You know, we've been doing the pod for nearly three years. You've been on with us dozens of times. Uh Liz Ann has never come on with us. So, um, yeah, yeah, so we're excited to to speak with Liz Ann. We love her work uh, at Schwab and obviously on CNBC. And so you're going to get to listen to that on Thursday. How about that? I might still wait till Friday to do that. I'll be busy with my pie, but but I'm happy that she did it, and I'm eager to hear it. All right, fair enough. All right, thank you, Liz. Uh, stick around. Guy and I are going to go over just this whole saga that's going on with OpenAI and Microsoft, the implications on some of these large publicly traded companies, what's going on in Elon's world, uh, and that's the place. Oh, it's dark, man. And obviously, we're going to hit NVIDIA earnings. When we come back, Guy and I, and I are going to hit all of that. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome back, Guy Adami. Big weekend. Listen, I know that on a weekend like this, your Giants got what I think was a big win down there in D.C., and I know you were most focused on that yesterday afternoon. 
But my phone was like blowing up with alerts from basically all the major news services and all the tech rags and some friends in, in, in tech about this saga that had been going on with OpenAI since Friday afternoon. And it was pretty fascinating because I remember seeing the headline again. This was around three o'clock Friday guy that OpenAI, you know, the board had fired Sam Altman, the CEO, who was basically the poster child for AI in the Valley, right? And if you think about what sparked this massive rally in the NASDAQ mm -hmm. among the biggest names, it was basically the launch about a year ago of ChatGPT. This is their large language model that just I think folks just thought it was far better than people expected. They started just visualizing all these consumer apps and the like and the way they're going to integrate it, these large software companies or logistics companies or whatever. And that just got everything going last year. And so the fact that Sam was kicked out like that and then just the news, we were covering it on Fast Money after the close, really through the lens of Microsoft, which owns nearly 50% of the company. And they have this very like large encompassing deal for access to the technology, but also for OpenAI to use their Azure like cloud platform and a whole host of other things with that. At the time, we were just focused, what does it mean for Microsoft? Okay, you've said that this is one of the five most important companies in the world. And I'm just going to talk about what I think has happened since Friday afternoon with Sam Altman and some of their biggest talent from OpenAI going to work at Microsoft, mm -hmm. what that means for the landscape, what it means for OpenAI. To me, this makes Microsoft, I think, guy, the most important company in the world from here on out. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you that flat out. I fully expect this company to eclipse Apple in market cap in 2024. I think this changes the landscape dramatically for the potential outcomes, how Microsoft is going to use this technology, not just their access to open AI, okay, but also what they do internally now with Sam Altman and the team, whoever they're bringing over there, I just think it's a game changer. Appears to be, from what I can tell, and obviously this story is, is pretty fluid as we're taping this, 500 or so employees of OpenAI wrote a letter or some sort of missive stating that unless he was reinstated, Sam Altman, that they were going to resign their post. And apparently, I th guess the thought process is if that were to happen, all those people would migrate to Microsoft. Again, I have no idea how this is going to play out. But to your point, I have said many times over the years, this is before we even talked about AI, that Microsoft was one of the five most important companies in the world. And that continues to be true. They're extraordinarily innovative. If you think about their products, they affect our everyday lives every single almost moment of the day. With that said, they're being rewarded pretty handsomely in terms of valuation, a company that's approaching 30 times next year's earnings. That is expensive. Now, you could say it's justified. They deserve it. That's fine. But any missteps along the way, this stock has gone lower as well. So here's we're sitting here. The stock's trading either side of 375. I believe the all-time high is within a few dollars of that. I actually think we might have made an all-time high at some point today. But don't get confused. This has been a pretty parabolic move since late September when it was trading about $310. That is not an insignificant move for a company of this market cap. Now approaching, it's amazing to even say this, $3 trillion. This doesn't have to be a would you rather Apple or Microsoft, but when you think of how these two companies are positioned, they're both about $3 trillion in market cap. Microsoft's a company that's expected to do a quarter of a billion dollars in sales this fiscal year, growing at kind of mid-teens percentage and on earnings that are expected to grow mid-teens or so. Like you said, it trades about 33 times fiscal 2024, about 29 times 
fiscal 25, similar expected growth, but this is a 65% gross margin company versus an Apple that's 45% and growing far less. And so to me, I just think it's interesting that we have talked about Apple for years now, right, as the largest market cap company in the world. I think that's going to change really quickly. And when you think about Satya Nadella and how he has been positioning this company over the last 10 years, right, and now that they have these assets, this resource of this team that they were only invested in, and it's quite shocking, Guy, when you think about that they have invested $13 billion over the last three or four years in OpenAI, and they did not have a board seat. They did not have a seat at the table for how this is going to shake out. Ironically, it may work out really well for them. Now, the flip side of this is Anthropic, which is a company that Amazon and Google Alphabet have been tripping over each other to not only hire talent from away from OpenAI and obviously some of these other startup companies, but Anthropic was founded by a bunch of folks who left OpenAI a couple years ago, and they've raised lots of capital here. So the knee-jerk reaction guy was to sell Alphabet, Google, off on this news, right? Now, Friday, it rallied when Microsoft sold off. And so I think it's interesting. The changing landscape is going to be something that we're talking about for months and months here. I suspect Anthropic benefits from an OpenAI um, implosion. Microsoft clearly does. But I think a lot of these large uh, public companies who are vying for this sort of talent probably benefit too. But to me, the clear beneficiary guy, the clear beneficiary is Microsoft as we think about it right here on a Monday morning. Appears to be. And just to tie a bow on this, people will hate me to say this, but you can live without Apple products regardless of whether or not you believe that. You basically, though, in the existence that we all have in today's world, it would be very hard to do what we do without Microsoft. So one company is vital to our existence, I think. The other one is just, to a certain extent, a bit of a luxury. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. And Elon Musk tweeted something out over the weekend talking about the expected okay, spend by Microsoft. I think he was quoting something in a press release or on, on, one, of their, on one of their statements. And I think this is really interesting. And I just want to quote this because just remember, Elon Musk, was a founder of OpenAI. This was meant to be a nonprofit, right? And some of the issues that have arisen over the last couple of weeks or so appears to be what the board has felt. And these are board members that do not own stock in, in this, in the public or the entity, the, the profit for profit entity. And it's about trust. It's about safety. It's about profitability. It's about what the motives are for this company. And I thought it was interesting. So Elon Musk tweeted this over the weekend, right? Guy, as this was all unwinding, I'd love to get your take on it. It was just yikes. And he didn't quote where this was from, but I thought it was interesting. Microsoft is currently conducting the largest infrastructure build out that humanity has ever seen. While that may seem like a hyperbole, look at the annual spend of mega projects such as nationwide rail networks, dams, or even space programs such as the Apollo moon landings as they all pale in comparison to the $50 billion annual spend on data centers Microsoft has penned in for 2024 and beyond. This infrastructure build-out is aimed squarely at accelerating the path of AGI, okay, and the bringing of intelligence of generative AI to every facet of life, okay? So think about that. All right. So this is why, to me, it seems clear now that they were reliant on open AI that had very, they had very little control over. And now they have some of their best assets, some of their best minds working internally, and they still own 50% of open AI. Makes you wonder how this whole thing sort of played out. And to your point, although Friday, it appeared that this might be a negative for Microsoft, 
if you think about what's transpiring, again, there's probably more room left to run with this, but it's really working. It could not work out much better for Microsoft if, in fact, they wind up with Sam Altman on their team and basically the entire staff of OpenAI is constituted. So it's, it, listen, a lot of chapters left to be written. There's more to this story, but right now it appears to be working for Microsoft. Yeah. One headline guy that that might, and again, this is all still unfolding, that kind of might have ruffled the feathers of the board here is that Sam Altman was supposedly in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago looking to raise money for a chip operation, okay, to, to basically compete with NVIDIA to start building their own chips, designing their own chips and building them out. And I think that's interesting when you think about NVIDIA reporting tomorrow, Tuesday, after the close, the implied move in the options market is about 7%. This stock is up 237% year to date, guy. Now, interestingly, okay, the company reported in late May, everybody knows this, that huge gap, that huge beat and guide. And then they had a subsequent one beat and guide. When the stock was trading at very similar levels three months ago, put up a big beat and raise, the stock gapped up, big short covering rally, and then sold off. And didn't only sell off, sold off significantly, especially for a company that's got one and a quarter trillion dollar market cap. It went from in the post market, I think you said 516 on numerous occasions over the next month or so down to about 400. Now it's been all over the place. Here we are. We're up 27% in a straight line since October 31st. We're approaching those prior all-time highs. Again, 7% implied move in either direction guy on a $1.2 trillion market cap company. Are we going to see some fireworks in this thing tomorrow or Wednesday in, in the trading day? Hard to believe we won't. And to your point, at the end of August, the stock, I think the day of earnings closed with a 480 or so handled. You mentioned I saw a 516 print in the after hours during Fast Money. By the middle of or late September, the stock was trading 410. We subsequently bounced back up to, I think, 470 in October, only then to go below 400 in late October. And here we are right back where we started. So to answer your question, absolutely. And again, I, I don't know what they're going to say. You know, I don't know what revenue guidance they're going to give and how excited people will get and their earnings growth and the total addressable market and all those things that people will talk about. A $1.2 trillion company right now trading at a pretty significant multiple to revenue, which might be fine if revenue continues to grow at the rate that the market seems to think it will. But again, you've mentioned this, any hiccup, any sense of double or triple ordering, any supply disruptions, any of those things, and there's a vulnerability to the stock. And again, I'm not a hater. I think NVIDIA is a great company without question. My concern all along, and to a certain extent unfounded, has been just the valuation the market is attached to them. One of the things I think is clear on a quarter over quarter basis, expected EPS growth of 25%, and that's up hundreds of percent from last year, but quarter over quarter expected 19% growth. That's after last quarter was 88% growth in revenue. So again, so as those growth rates start to decline on a sequential basis, there's less incentive in my opinion, right? Because the comparisons are really easy. So again, we want to keep looking at gross margins and, and, and what's going on there. It's a 72% gross margin company. Are we going to see any margin pressure there? The one thing you didn't mention is obviously all these export bans that we're seeing. And, and we know that there's been lots of workarounds. We know that AMD just announced a chip quite recently. Intel's getting into the game. So competition is going to be there in 2024. How are those companies going to compete in these high-end graphics chips? 
on price, especially if their chip is not as great as an H100, an H200, that sort of thing. And we know that there's been price gouging because of the lack of supply of these chips. At some point, that will all abate. And the NVIDIA story becomes less interesting after such eye-popping gains. And that's my two cents on it. Again, I'm not a hater either. I just think that so much of the enthusiasm in and around this mega trend, and it is a mega trend, has been just really centered around NVIDIA in 2023. And at some point, I expect a retracement of some of that excitement. Well, and I'll say this again, in October of 2022, so basically a year or so ago, this stock had been coming off in a pretty precipitous fashion ever since the fall of 2021. This stock was basically $115-ish around Halloween of 2022, and you couldn't give it away. Just the resounding negativity around it was eye-opening, if you think about it. And that's now the flip side of that coin is what we're seeing now. So the extremes, just in terms of sentiment for this stock over the last year, have been pretty, pretty remarkable. Again, it probably didn't deserve to be as low as it was. And the question right now is, does it deserve to be this high? Yeah. All right. Last thing before we get out of here, let's just hit the stuff that's going on in and around Elon. And I guess this is not interesting to us as it relates to Twitter. He's been tagged. The White House has said it. A, a bunch of major advertisers have come out and said it. There's just been no shortage of discussion about a tweet that some deem to be very anti-Semitic. And so, therefore, we've had Apple, Disney, Sony, IBM, I think was one of the first ones, a whole host of advertisers have basically said they're not they're pausing advertising on the platform and this is squarely because of Elon's acknowledgement and and his comment about what was deemed to be a very anti-semitic tweet now he's come out and said I'm not an anti-semite guys like Bill Ackman who've been doxing kids on college campuses okay like dumb college kids in many occasions for what he's perceived to be anti-semitic behavior there came out and tweeted that Elon is not an anti-semite despite the fact of what his tweets actually say, okay? So I just think it's a really interesting juxtaposition. I also think it's interesting that someone like Ron Barron, who's on CNBC, it's seemingly like every week talking up Tesla and Elon has not come out and said anything. A whole host of these other bro podcasters who obviously have a lot of opinions on this sort of stuff have not come out and said anything. I just think it's interesting, not as it relates to Twitter, but when you think about what Sam Altman just happened to him as it relates to being kicked off or kicked out of OpenAI by a board. What is his board doing at Tesla? This is a publicly traded company, right? That is clearly, I think, being adversely affected by the CEO and his behavior with another company, right? That he owns wholeheartedly. What does that mean for demand? We've seen a bunch of investors. We've seen a lot of consumers come out and say, we don't like this behavior. This is uh, Tesla consumers. And the other point, I would just say is, what does it mean for SpaceX? A lot of their contracts come from you know, NASA and the U.S. government. The White House had something to say about it. So I guess my question to you, Guy, could we, and we talked about this a little bit on Friday's Fast Money, could we see Tesla's board finally grow a pair and basically say, listen, bro, what are you focused on here? You know what I mean? Do you want to continue to accelerate for, in a very difficult time, the adoption of EVs, okay, and your path towards like this coming a, a trillion dollar market cap company again? Do you want to continue to do what you did over the weekend with this starship, which they think it's a success? It's the second consecutive blow up of this thing, but they want to get to the moon. They want to get people to Mars. Like these are really important things. And I think waiting in the anti-Semitic cesspool of Twitter is not helping his cause as it relates to Tesla, a publicly traded company, and SpaceX, arguably one of the also most important companies in the world right now, Guy. 
it's pretty apparent the board's not going to do anything in terms of trying to rein him in. But that's been clear since the inception of Tesla as a publicly traded company. The board seems just to be a rubber stamp group, which it is what it is. And I will say this, it's hard to argue in terms of the overall success of Tesla. Now, with that said, you're looking at a stock that made an all-time high, I believe, and, and you know this a lot better than I do, but I want to say it was probably November of 2021. Stock was north of $400 a share. And since then, you've had a series of lower highs and potentially lower lows if this thing continues to cascade. People get, I think, seduced by the move we've seen from January of 23, where it was $108 stock or whatever it was, up to $300 or so, dollars, and they focus on that. But the reality of the situation is since the fall of 2021, this stock has completely underperformed the broader NASDAQ. And that's something to think about because I know people think Tesla's been this great stock. In reality, it hasn't been that great at all. And if you start to see potential demand destruction in terms of Tesla's the cars on the back of people just being done with him, that's obviously problematic. Yeah, I, I think that is going on right now. And again, I think this price war hasn't helped consumer sentiment towards the product too. We have a friend who was telling us that he paid $67,000 for his brand new Tesla a year and a half ago. And now that same car can be bought for $40,000. He's pissed. You, you, know, you know what I mean? And, and the other thing is, the, the value, Elon long touted the uh, resale value of Teslas. They've absolutely crashed, right? So in this price war. So I think that's a really important point. And then the other point I'll just make is that, again, SpaceX reliance on government contracts. How can they give government contracts to somebody who, where some of the largest companies on the planet are pulling advertising from his social media platform because they deem it to be anti-Semitic behavior. Sooner or later, like the rubber is going to hit the road. And the last point I'll just make, guys, is that if for any reason he was rebuked, let's say he was put on the beach, he was kicked off the board with the issues of the SEC, or at least as the chairman of the board of Tesla a few years ago, what if he was to have to take a sabbatical from Tesla because of this behavior? What do you think the, pre the, the Elon premium in the stock is? To me, it's probably 25%, like to your point about how much the stock has rallied from those January lows in, in 2023. To me, I think there's an air pocket down to 150 if for any reason he's not associated with this company anytime soon. The interesting point is don't underestimate people's, if it's in their best interest to deal with certain people, they will do that. Recently, there was a dinner in San Francisco with a number of different CEOs in the United States, mega companies with President Xi, and they gave the man a standing ovation, which is fine. It's their right to do. But you, you're talking about one of the most totalitarian regimes in, in the world. If it behooves people to do what's in their best interest fiscally, they will find ways around. They'll look past certain things. You're right. At a certain point, it's going to matter. It doesn't seem to matter right now. Well, I mean, to your point, Bill Ackman couldn't look like a bigger hypocrite. This crusade against anti-Semitism that he's been on, both on Twitter and, and on TV and this and that, whatever, but then coming out and supporting Elon based on what we see is just amazing. And it was interesting. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal. I remember this a few weeks ago. He's got some super SPAC out there and he wants to take one of Elon's companies, maybe Starlink, maybe Twitter, public through this super SPAC. So he's cozying up. So he punches down to kids on college campuses and then he, whatever he's doing on the way up with a guy like Elon, it's absolutely pathetic in my opinion. 
All right, guy, we covered a lot of ground here. I appreciate you ripping through some of the tech stuff with us. There's also a bunch of retail earnings this week, Best Buy, Nordstrom's. I think that'll all be really interesting. Liz and I covered a bunch of what we heard last week from Walmart and Target and and some other consumer-facing companies. It doesn't sound great, but again, the week of Black Friday, it'll be interesting to see what these companies have to say because I suspect they have their fingers on the pulse of what has been a very promotional retail environment prior to Black Friday. All of that we'll cover later on in the week on the market call. You and I are going to be doing a couple of them at weird times, so check out our socials for that. But Guy Adami, I appreciate you being with me on a Monday morning here, and we'll check you all later this week on Market Call and our On The Tape podcast that's going to have a special drop with Liz Ann Saunders from Schwab on Thursday. Look for that. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.